We've done the hard work. Our fathers, our forefathers, our grandfathers all bequeathed us these lessons. We've just decided to slough them off in favor of what? Nothing in particular. It's truly vexing. Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. In 1987, the great novelist and essayist Tom Wolfe published a piece in The American Spectator. Wolfe's essay began by looking at the psychedelic counterculture movement centered in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco in 1968. At that time, doctors and free clinics were observing patients coming in with diseases and other maladies that no doctor there or anywhere else that they could find had ever treated before. In fact, these diseases hadn't been seen in so long that they were never given Latin terminology and were known only by the mange, the grunge, the itch, the twitch, the thrush, the scroff, and the rot. What was happening is that as the hippie movement was shedding norms of hygiene and cleanliness in order to live more authentically, diseases associated with a period of time when hygiene was not common were returning. The title of Wolf's essay was The Great Relearning. The hippies and others were relearning why we engaged in these certain hygienic practices all over again. In an essay in the January 2024 issue of National Review, senior writer Noah Rothman sees similar patterns of people persuading themselves that inherited wisdom and common knowledge doesn't apply anymore happening all over again. In his essay, entitled The Great Unlearning, Rothman breaks down several different areas of American life where certain people have persuaded themselves that the lessons of history, economics, and good governance don't apply anymore. The results, as Rothman documents, have been disastrous. In this episode, I talk with Noah Rothman about the great unlearning, why it's happening, and what we can and should do about it. Noah Rothman is a senior writer at National Review. He is the author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun, and Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. He is also the author of The Great Unlearning, an essay in the January 2024 issue of National Review, which we'll be discussing today. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Noah Rothman, welcome to Act in Line. Thank you so much for having me. So your essay in the December, or January, excuse me, edition of National Review in uh, what I should add is a beautifully redesigned magazine for those of you who aren't subscribers to the print edition of National Review. Um, I encourage you to. It's a beautifully redesigned magazine. Your essay is The Great Unlearning, as you look at a society-wide recovery being needed of fundamentals. Um, why, don't you, why don't we start with, t- tell us in general, what is your essay about and what trends were you starting to notice that inspired you to write it? So for conservative right-leaning thinkers, the notion that society has uh, failed to adhere to or simply failed to appreciate the lessons uh, that they were bequeathed by their forebearers after uh, centuries or perhaps millennia of experimentation with different theories of social organization isn't going to sound especially innovative or novel. Um, We've all encountered these arguments before. Uh, What I wanted to do in this essay was to focus more on some of the practical and prudential ways in which a great rediscovery of some of the um, the lessons of history that we've sloughed off in our uh, in our hubris and our assumption that this is the most enlightened generation of all of history has ever produced um, can teach us with in relation to very practical problems that we're encountering right now: fl- inflation, uh, economic uh, uh, mobility, and 
the governance of great cities and how to navigate an anarchic international environment defined by great power competition. None of this stuff is weird or new or novel. We've had uh, generations have experimented with it, uh, understand what works and understand what doesn't. So it, it really didn't seem to me like there was uh, a, a great wealth of experiment, of exploration rather, of how these how what we understand to be sort of an, uh, a really uh, prideful exercise in forgetting, deliberately forgetting the lessons of history could actually help us navigate our environments. It was just really philosophical and kind of a, a broad theoretical lament. But I wanted to make this a little more narrow, a little bit more focused. And so it would be a helpful guide for policymakers who want to take these lessons and apply them practically. Where is this? Um, the title, of course, sticks out to me as a, uh, a reference to a great Tom Wolfe essay, the, the Great Relearning, where he looked at what was happening in particularly like the height Ashbury in San Francisco uh, during the height of the hippies, where you had people coming down with diseases that uh, doctors could not readily diagnose. And they had to go back to older textbooks to find out, well, these are just the kind of things that start to happen uh, when you ignore the basic tenets of, of hygiene and cleanliness. And we go back to kind of a more animalistic period of time. Um, in this unlearning, where is the motivation coming for, I guess, the the desire to unlearn these things? Or I guess what, what stuck out to what stuck out in my mind as I was reading your essay is this modern trend to think that if we could just change the way that we talk about certain problems, if we change the language that surrounds it, we can change at the actual reality of the circumstances just by changing our verbal projections uh, onto other people of what we're describing. Yeah, that's generally a progressive conceit, but not ex uh, exclusively a progressive conceit. Um, one of uh, Frank Lentz's great claims to fame is the uh, reimagining of the uh, inheritance taxes as the death tax. And by reframing that, you reframe the debate, you change the shape of the debate and advance your cause. And there's there's a practicality there, too, but it is easily overstated um, when it comes to how we've been seeing this manifest, this desire to uh, unlearn the lessons of history, it is because those lessons are a shackle on policymakers who simply want to pursue the policies they want to pursue and don't like the idea that there are knowable downsides to them. So they undermine the idea or chip away at the idea that those downsides are applicable today to our to our very distinct and perhaps even um, unique circumstances. Uh, when it comes to inflation in particular, there was a, a real um, aggressive lobbying effort on the part of uh, progressives in policy and in media, arguing that the lessons of the 1970s are just simply not applicable to our present circumstances for a variety of reasons. Their supply chains are different. The global economy is different. Um, there's uh, you know, a whole variety of uh, a suite of policies that we've developed in the interim that can contain inflation in ways that uh, our forebearers didn't know or understand or simply didn't have. But the objective was always just because they wanted to spend as much money as possible, as fast as possible. So it was it was a heuristic. It was a, an argument, the weapon nearest to hand to get what they wanted, which was spending as fast as possible, as quickly as possible. And that is what they got. They argued for forgetting explicitly in the case of um, uh, Benjamin Applebaum, who is a New York Times uh, editorial writer, is on the editorial board, said explicitly, forget the lessons of the 1970s of the past. You're, you're haunted by ghosts, he said, you know, just liberate yourself. And they did. And what they got was this uh, spectacle in which Democrats argued with themselves over how it, the inflation that we were seeing is probably environmental and it's transitory and it's not really real. And also it's uh, the people who are complaining about it are, are uh, you know, detached from the circumstances of most other Americans and we can't really fix it. We don't even really know what it is. It was a weird spectacle uh, and it's totally unnecessary and totally undeserved. We know how to contain inflation. We know how to contain reimpose containment when containment fails. The problem is, is all the remedies are very painful. None of them are are great. Nobody's going to welcome them, which is part of the reason why you have to observe the the uh, fundamentals of containment 
for insofar as it's possible for as long as possible, because when that fails, all the remedies are undesirable. But we know exactly what they are. It is not spending beyond the rates of, of economic growth, deficit spending ex exceeding economic growth. It is establishing a navigable regulatory environment that favors entrepreneurs and um, and innovators over the bureaucrats who would constrain them. Um, it is ensuring that demand doesn't continue to rise alongside wages and that wages eventually catch up with with demand and if you continue to to juice wages so that they catch keep chasing inflation then inflation keeps chasing wages and you have this self-perpetuating cycle all this stuff is known and knowable but it was there was this great theatrical display of uh, of forgetting on the part of people who wanted all these lessons to no longer be applicable and it was it, that was it they just wanted that um and it was a, a very costly exercise it reminded me of a, it's probably 15 years old now, but in a Saturday Night Live sketch uh, with Steve Martin and Amy Poehler and Chris Parnell, where this Steve Martin and Amy Poehler, this couple that apparently are struggling with debt. And Chris Parnell's solution is a book that he's written called uh, Don't Buy Stuff You Can't Afford. Um, and as they continue to ask questions to him of like, well, what if I really want something but don't have the money? Don't buy it. And the hilarity of that whole sketch is just the simplicity of the conceit, right? That like it's something that everybody knows, but that nobody wants to be true. Uh, the but I want it. So like, you know, but 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 what if I don't have the money? Then you don't buy it. This is confusing, right? It's you know, the, the way they handle it is we'll put it in the show notes for anyone who hasn't seen it. It's 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 great. But it do, do you think it was particularly with regard to policy that both created inflation and, and I'll inject the bit from the interviews I've done with David Bonson in the past where I think the one element about the inflation conversation that I know he always inserts is that we did create a massive supply shock in our COVID policy response in shutting down the economy. So there's a there's an X factor in there. that's a little different from the 1970s. But well, the supply think... shock was part of the 1970s problem. And in fact, it was argued against. I'm sorry to interrupt. But that's no, what some of the people who are arguing for, you know, just unconstrained spending in the in the post early post mid COVID period when Joe Biden took office was that there were they argued both they argued both ways. They said, listen, this is nothing like the 70s because we don't have these, you know, supply shocks. But also you can't blame us for inflation because of all the supply shocks. This is literally the argument that was made and sometimes in, within the space of a couple of breaths from people who were just arguing for their desiderata, what they want when they want it. So yeah, we did have a supply shock problem. But the, recognizing that should have constrained spending. It should have created the conditions, at least the cognitive conditions and policymakers who would be wary of exacerbating that tension by juicing demand, by creating more demand for goods that the economy could not provide, and therefore increasing inflation. I mean, that's all inflation is. It's just too, too much demand and not enough goods to, to satisfy that demand. And so the 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 fiscal policy, the um, Biden administration leaned heavily into monetary policy, tight monetary policy, controlling um, or at least deferring to the Fed in the effort to control uh, the money supply. But their fiscal policy bore no resemblance to an anti-inflationary approach to fiscal policy. These two policies were working at odds with each other, and nobody seemed to reconcile the discrepancy until it became an untenable situation. So by your lights, is this a uh, particularly the inflation problem? Because you, as you mentioned, there are other areas where this same thread runs through, and I want to get to those in a moment. But is it just a combination by your lights of uh, motivated reasoning and a uh, lack of political courage? Because I, I think you're right that people do know like what the policy answers to inflation are. But you, I mean, you make an important point that they're not popular things to do. And when you had some groundwork already being laid you know, prior to the pandemic, we had this bump in the idea of um, the salience of modern monetary theory, which always struck me as, again, the same kind of motivated reasoning that was like, we can spend whatever money we want and there are no consequences to it when, you know, any economist worth their salt is going, e even one that is in favor of a, you know, Keynesian stimulus and all that will tell you that there are trade-offs and consequences, but this whole movement seemed to want to eschew the idea that there could be any possible consequences to spending a ton of money. 
Well, I always I was so frustrated with MMT, modern monetary policy, modern monetary theory advocates, because they're they're terrible um, advocates for their own theory. They emphasize, as you say correctly, that all this spending can just happen. Spend, 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 spend. And you get all the goodies you possibly want. But the other side of that theory, it's the same theory, is that you have to tax the heck out of that spending so that it never finds its way into circulation. The second it finds its way into circulation, you have an inflationary problem. So you have to, the second it's spent by the government, the government has to tax it immediately. So it never finds its way into, into your pocket. They never emphasize that. In fact, they say the other, the opposite, that you'll enjoy all these benefits, including monetary benefits, including just, just you know an increase in your own capital. Uh, and they just simply elide that part of the theory, which is the only thing that makes it remotely logical. And I think it has many deficiencies beyond that, but they don't even observe the illogic of their theory. And when it comes to courage, as you said, I think that's part of it. Some of these policymakers may genuinely be um, not acquainted with some of the lessons of history, but there is definitely a courage problem when it comes to, for example, as a remedy for inflation, price and wage controls. Price and wage controls are now suddenly very popular. You've had uh, Canadian Prime Minister uh, Trudeau entertaining the idea of reimposing price controls to keep the cost of food down. Talk about an old idea, maybe the oldest economic idea, the idea that you can simply reimpose a price on something and make it static and therefore affordable. And we've had literally millennia of experimentation with this idea, only to discover that not only does it not work, but it makes the problem you're trying to address worse. It's nevertheless very popular. So what do you do? Do you tell people something they don't want to hear? Or do you entertain the notion, uh, maybe not implement it, but at least entertain the wisdom of the masses uh, to save your own political skin? And the more you give credence to bad ideas, the more likely they are to come to fruition at some point or another. So yeah, there is a courage problem there for sure. Before we move off the the purely economic issues part of this, do you think that there is a great unlearning going on in certain segments of the political right as well? Because the, the, at least for a lot of uh, of of my time in this world, you know, the responsibility of of the conservative in the argument was always to be was I think it's the row that there's a certain. Um, uh, meanness in the argument of a conservative along with a certain superiority in its fact uh, to be the ones to have to step in to remind people of these kinds of things. But as I look at some of the the new right people, um, ones who embraced uh, similar kinds of spending uh, during the COVID pandemic, the idea of just printing money, um, do, do you think there's an unlearning, at least when it comes to economics, going on with uh, the new right as well? I mean, of course there is. And um, I get to the right in that essay later on when it comes to uh, the approaches to foreign policy, but there most certainly is. Um, the right has found itself particularly attracted to protectionism as a remedy for um, the uh, excesses of uh, global um, global uh, globalization of the economy, for example. And it's a very contradictory problem for them because, and let's just take one recent example, a very controversial example, which is the recent sale of uh, U.S. steel to a Japanese competitor. Now, this has frustrated many an economic nationalist on the American right. They find this to be not only an insult to the American worker, but a threat to American national security. Uh, U.S. steel is absolutely imperative to the development of, for example, a, a blue blue water navy, which we absolutely need in order to counter the threats from abroad. And this, they say, imperils our ability to do that. Well, I don't think that's true at all. But you also have to understand where this came from. What is what is the impetus for U.S. steel selling or, or, or Japanese steel selling itself to uh, to or Japanese steel acquiring U.S. steel? It's because of protectionist policies that created tariffs on the steel that did not allow Japanese steelmakers to in, to uh, access the American market. So Japan wanted access to the American market. And so what they did was purchase U.S. steel for way above market value. Why was it above market value? Because the U.S. government had inflated the price of U.S. steel. So, the, so Japanese steel is simply responding to the incentives 
that are the Japanese steelmakers responding to incentives from the U.S. government to inflate the price of U.S. steel so they could access the U.S. market that policymakers didn't want them to access. And now they're complaining, and I think unjustly, frankly, about the effects of their own policy preferences. None of this is hard to forecast. It was forecasted. But the problem was nobody wanted to listen to the remedies that were prescribed by these old, uh, you know, conservative relics who were uh, so, you know, caught up in all this 20th century uh, gold, gold watery and nonsense. And it was time to move on. The tides of history had turned and we were the this generation was more enlightened than the last generation, blah, 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 blah. They ignored the lessons of history. They're suffering the consequences of that. And they look to us to blame us for not properly warning them, I suppose, of the effects of their own policies. Um, it's more than a little perverse. And I have very little sympathy for it, as you can tell. It uh, did produce, I think, what may be my favorite headline of the year, though, to Eric Bame writing at uh, Reason Magazine, what J.D. Vance could learn from reading Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, is I uh, will put that piece in the show notes as well. But the uh, that headline made me laugh out loud when I read it. Uh, I want to move to major American cities. What is the great unlearning that is going on with regard to the governance of our great large American cities? So it's captured really in a quote that I stole from um, the intellectual Nathan Glazer, uh, who in a 1993 lecture crystallized one of the major problems that has afflicted cities from the 60s on, but with a brief interlude between the 1980s and early aughts, in which we sort of walked away briefly from the reconceptualization of uh, city management um, as something quite utopian and returned to something very practical. Uh, Glazer said in 1993, quote, Speaking of New York City, New York stopped trying to do well the kinds of things a city can do, and it started trying to do the things a city cannot do. So what he meant was a city knows how to do certain things well. It knows how to pick up the trash. It knows how to fight crime. It knows how to construct facilities and deconstruct facilities that have reached uh, past, past the point of their utility. Um, it knows how to do all those things that make a city livable. What it doesn't know how to do is fight poverty. It doesn't know how to save people from the consequences of their own decisions if they are self-destructive. It doesn't know how to extirpate racism from men's hearts. It does not know how to control the weather. And those are the things to which city officials, municipal officials across this country have committed themselves to. Municipal Municipalities across this country are tearing themselves apart in order to pass non-binding resolutions stating their position one way or the other on the Israeli war against Hamas. Why? Why? What does that have anything to do with anything? It's not your job. It's not your remit. Do you think your position is too small for you? Does it not satisfy your ego? It's a, it's a bizarre um, failure to understand the municipal official's job. Um, we know, again, we know, and, and there's this weird, the, the whole forgetting aspect of this is that I was surveying the commentary around why American cities, great American cities seem to be in decline and are, quote, ungovernable in the Atlantic David Graham's observation. And they just seem totally confounded by the problem. They don't understand. Is it is it the fact that we have highways bisecting our cities? Is it the fact that we have these, uh, you know, we we have these tax policies that are pushing people out, but all, but also we have to have those tax policies in order to maintain the standard and quality of life that we lead now and attract the right talent that we want to have. Uh, it was they're all just very confused in ways that they really shouldn't be. Um, there's economic laws that apply to the the malaise that afflicts the American city, many of which were developed in the 1960s. Uh, which was a decade in which all of these problems began to rear their heads and were subsequently addressed by the generation hence in the 1980s and the 1990s. But we do know that roughly um, a non-confiscatory tax policy, something that doesn't punish people who, who want to live in cities and work in cities, uh, is part of it. A, a deterrent criminal, uh, a, a criminal uh, justice regime that deters criminality by policing um, quality of life crimes first, which makes cities, uh, you know, pre prevent the the kind of crime that makes cities unlivable. 
uh, are the sort of things you do if you want to keep a functional, maintain a functional city environment. And then all of a sudden we have, and this, so these are all new problems or old problems, but there, we do have a slightly newer element to this, which is that the covenant that used to exist between progressive activists and democratic politicians to whom they were beholden has been broken. In the past, the activists would make ridiculous, absurd demands, uh, seek the kind of social and radical social engineering that no politician would ever subscribe to if they wanted to keep their office. And the politicians would reject that and they'd get to look sane and sober and the activists would get to look committed and zealous and behind the scenes, they'd all scratch each other's backs. That covenant was broken when the politicians decided to put the activists' demands into effect and see how they worked. And what we've seen is that when you declare a city a sanctuary city, you get a lot of migrants. You have you increase the pull factors from migration and you get an immigration crisis. When you shutter the mental hospitals, you increase the likelihood that dangerously mentally ill people will have dangerous interactions with civilians. That's what's happened. We've seen so many things that were predictable as a result of this dynamic breaking down that should have been predicted. They weren't. And the question is why? What is the cognitive obstacle to drawing these conclusions? And what I settle on is that there is this great deliberate exercise in convincing ourselves that we have evolved beyond the constraints that were imposed on our forebears, that the end of history is upon us and we're living in it. And it's a bizarre conceit. It is hopelessly wrong. And we have to live through its failure now. We'll probably have to live through one again. But the remedy to it is simply remembering. I lived in Chicago for about uh, 15 years and uh, nearby Oak Park, uh, which is a nice little wealthy suburb just outside of the city, uh, had passed a resolution maybe 15, 20 years ago uh, declaring it a nuclear free zone, which is uh, keeping in that same kind of nicely symbolic stuff that means absolutely nothing at all, but uh, always like to refer to Oak Park as the nuclear free zone when it uh, when it comes up. But stay stay on Chicago for a minute. I mean, you're you're analysis of the uh, hardcore progressive activists and the things that they demand eventually getting put into policy. In, in Chicago, it's not just that. They're also getting elected. Um, I believe there are now 12 members of the 50-person Chicago City Council. 12 of the 50 aldermen are members of the Democratic Socialists of America. And they now have a lot more sway over policy in the city. Um, uh, Brandon Johnson, who is now the new mayor of, uh, of Chicago, um, is very much of a mind with them. He is a creature of the Chicago Teachers Union, which is the most powerful political organization in the city of Chicago. And they're really having their run of it in terms of policy. And it's been married with the things that we hear about from Chicago regularly, violence, crime, um, a immigration crisis, and massive out migration uh, from that city. The, the, the crime part, I'd, I'd like you to unpack a little bit um, as, as you observe what's going on in cities like Chicago, New York. Um, some of them are handling it uh, better or differently than others. I, I, I'll just, again, indulge me for a second. I was in New York uh, a couple times this year and even walked back from a bar to my, uh, my hotel at 1.30 in the morning and, and didn't feel unsafe. And I lived in Chicago for 15 years and was walking three or four blocks near Michigan Avenue, not even all that late at night, and felt markedly less safe in a city that I was much more familiar with. So like these things are actually, I think, having an impact on the citizens of them. But there is just seemingly no desire from the political leadership to respond to the changes on the ground, even where you know the crime in Chicago, especially the violence, I always used to tell people that you know, yeah, it's a moral atrocity and it's awful, but it happens in six zip codes. And if you don't live in those six zip codes, you had no reason to be there. And over the last, I would say, eight years or so, it has started to bleed into areas of downtown and now becomes, you know, not just the occasional shooting, but carjackings and muggings and other things that make it sound more like New York City in the 1970s. And there just doesn't seem to be... Again, I go back to political courage. There's just no seemingly desire to either acknowledge that this problem exists, that it is a problem, that it is creating quality of life problems for all kinds of people all throughout Chicago, and to actually do something about it. I think because of this, you know, we still have a lot of people clinging on to a hostility to the concept 
of policing and the idea of police being an entity that even needs to exist. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, from in Chicago in particular, um, you have now this um, recent, it's an experiment, but it's not really an experiment because it's not at all new. Uh, and it's politically very disadvantageous, which tells you how committed they are to their intellectual project. Um, this effort to uh, decentralize, if not shutter, uh, schools that are high uh, achieving for selective schools for overachieving students. Uh, and there's a real conceit there that I think is is worth dwelling on, which is that once you once you come to the conclusion that it is your to accept the structures that constitute the status quo is to functionally or tacitly acknowledge that you're a part of an oppressive regime, that those structures are illegitimate um, and they are uh, they're detrimental to the citizenry and you have to act for action's sake in some cases because you can't simply allow the status quo to persist. Then you end up you end up doing what's easier rather than what's harder. And what's easier, is to disadvantage those who achieve rather than lift up those who, for whatever reason, struggle to navigate through life. It's almost impossible to save someone from the consequences of their own actions. It's certainly possible to frustrate uh, and make it more difficult for people who don't similarly struggle to navigate their environments. That's something politicians can do. They can't do the other. And if you have to do for the sake of doing, you do the thing. You do the thing that hurts because you can actually frame that at least as as um, your intentions are pure, even if the results are a disaster. When it comes to crime, there's something similar there insofar as you can't necessarily do the kind of proactive policing that you want uh, to the results of the proactive policing you want to see. Um, because that's actually quite difficult. It's not as it's not an easy project to do. It takes a long time to build the kind of consensus around that level of policing. Um, and so you end up doing the easier thing, which is to truncate policing, satisfy the activist class, and limit your ability to control events rather than expand your remit. Um, that's sort of the story in New York City. When New York City came back, Rudy Giuliani gets a ton of credit for and he deserves a lot of it for implementing citywide a series of policies that were incepted over the course of decades from below there was a quiet consensus that built up around the kind of what is what was called um broken windows policing a theory promulgated by james q wilson and george kelling in the atlantic before it was ever tried on the street level but even before that there were uh business improvement districts which were these small uh, corporations uh, manned uh, that were responsible for policing and improving uh, the uh, aesthetic appearance of their block by block area. So, for example, when the it wasn't as though that Giuliani tackled New York in New York City and Times Square was suddenly like re revived. This problem wasn't tackled first in Times Square. It was tackled under the Queensboro Bridge that was plagued with crime. And it was a cesspool of pornography and all the other ills that uh, end up contributing to an environment in which violent criminality can take hold and thrive. And that's where it was started. The experiment began there. It was later exported throughout the city. But this was an incremental process around developing a, a set of policy recommendations that required buy-in from the whole citizenry. And it took a long time to get there. And it didn't take long to break down, unfortunately. But in order to get there again, you have to re reinstitute this consensus, develop this incremental um, consensus around the idea that proactive policing has knock-on effects when it comes to crime. You can't just simply tackle crime and expect crime to be solved, or violent crime, and expect violent crime alone to be solved by remedying violent crime. There's There's a variety of inputs that go into it. And progressives would probably tell themselves that it has more to do with poverty than anything else. We have very little evidence to suggest that is the case. That's another conceit that they like to tell themselves in order to avoid doing the hard work. And the hard work is policing um, the quality of life stuff that they don't like policing. It's It targets young offenders. It targets low-income offenders, um, the homeless. Uh, it's just the the 
the people who are prosecuted for that sort of thing are the wrong people. But that is how you get to a stable social covenant. And without it, you have instability. And all of this stuff does not need to be known. We've done the hard work. Our fathers, our forefathers, our grandfathers all bequeathed us these lessons. We've just decided to slough them off in favor of what? Nothing in particular. It's truly vexing. As I read the story about uh, Chicago moving to shut down the selective enrollment uh, elite high schools, I you know I think for most of the time that I can remember, the debate has been which uh, dystopian novel was more predictive of our future, 1984 or Brave New World, and then out of nowhere comes Harrison Bergeron uh, to assert its own role in this. Um, I think there's something too about as you referenced that like that the James Q. Wilson uh, essay on broken windows policing was in the Atlantic, and you know, I think this is a perhaps a symbol of this exact problem that I don't even think an essay like that could get published in the Atlantic today. Like those kinds of, could a magazine like that, would they actually entertain an essay of that nature anymore? I don't think that's true. I think they would. Um, I can't necessarily speak for Jeff Goldberg, who's the editor over there. Um, but I think they would. Sometimes they publish counterintuitive things like that. What they couldn't do is incept in the public the kind of reach that essays like that used to have. These trial runs for policy in the space of uh, intellectual journals. That's that's harder to imagine. Um, I hope maybe someday we can get back there. But for those of us who are in the business of publishing in intellectual journals, we know they do not have the reach that they once did. What is the great unlearning that's been going on with regard to foreign policy? Sure. So I open that part of the essay with something more familiar to conservative readers, which is this es this effort to anathematize um, the giants of Western liberal thought, the liberal canon, um, because they are in on the left in particular. They are uh, colonizers. They're white European men who crowd out. Uh, the thinkers in the develop in what we know to be the developing world and the Muslim world, for example, of antiquity, and um, so these they, they need to be decolonized. On the right, there is a, uh, an effort that's not dissimilar in so far as uh, these uh, older thinkers are, uh, in particular, their attachment to liberalism uh, has put us on a path towards uh, fractious, uh, internecine squabbles, disunion, um, the sort of thing that inhibits our ability to craft and create and build great projects and um, frustrates the effort to uh, to you know uh, the, the to have the the full the full uh, flowering of the cult of unity that the right finds itself attracted to. Um, and it's but it's primarily on the left. This is not foremost a right wing problem. And you had a variety of Democratic officials who lent credence to the ideas that all these, you know, ideas that we've inherited uh, are um, not not only unequal to our time, but unjust in part because of the accidents of birth of the people who created them. The president of the United States himself attacked juris, English jurisprudential culture, you know, little things like trial by jury or confronting your accuser in court or evidentiary standards that should be really high for a criminal conviction, that sort of thing. He called that a white man's culture, said it's got to go. Um, all this stuff has a cognitive effect on the people who they're appealing to. They perceive themselves to be better than the people who came before them, better than their forebearers, more enlightened, more, more educated, more knowledgeable, and therefore more better equipped to navigate their environments and think up really novel and innovative ways to um, better the human lot. And this idea sort of um, came to fruition around the same time as the idea that we had as a species, as a human species, evolved beyond the point of which the eternal great contest between nations, a dynamic that has pertained since, I don't know, the Peloponnesian Wars, was somehow behind us. No longer will we be invested in the great game. This was something Barack Obama said in Russia, of all places, in 2013, I think, 2014. He said there's going to be, you know, threats from uh, isolated non-state terror groups and failed states and uh, nations on the periphery of the, you know, the great 
the great human tribe into which we were all uh, entering. Um, but those were the threats of the future. This, the idea that that nation states would go to war with each other over uh, petty things like prestige or even resources and territory was a thing of the past. And six months later, Russia invaded Ukraine and put that whole thing to rest. But in the interim, in the days that have, or the years that have followed, we've seen even more threats arise from America's near peer competitors in the pursuit of the eternal quest for regional and eventually global hegemony. International relations is a zero sum game. What you get, the other guy doesn't, vice versa. And alliance structure is something that we have, we can understand from antiquity. The, the Greek city-states established alliance structure, and it, the dynamic has not altered all these millennia later. But, and again, the right sort of succumbed to a little bit of this temptation themselves when Donald Trump throughout his presidency would routinely disparage allies because they provided us with no material tangible benefits. And he defined that in a very narrow sense. He meant capital. Like these these countries need to pay their freight. And if they don't, we can simply slough off the burden of being the sole global hegemon and outsource it to other countries like China. Literally said, for example, that the Chinese Navy should be taking on some of the responsibilities for counter piracy in America in the in global shipping lanes away from Western powers like the United States and Great Britain. I do not trust the Chinese to see especially well to American interests. But that didn't seem to really factor into this belief. The belief was that this was an unnecessary burden, an undue burden, and one we could simply abandon. And you know, the whole situation will take care of itself. It's a bizarre conceit, but it's one that has gotten us to this point now where we face the very real prospect of great power conflict again. And in fact, we always have. And we know how to deter it, which is purely around hard power. It is establishing the conditions on the ground in which an adversary takes a look at the opposing forces up and down, says, wow, the costs will probably really outweigh the benefits if we were to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with that force, and they self-deter. These are not like weird outlandish concepts. They're almost intuitive. You have to talk yourself out of them. You have to think yourself out of them. And that's precisely what we've been engaged in for so long, talking ourselves and thinking ourselves out of intuitive uh, intuitive uh, con uh, conclusions that we would reach from having the barest familiarity with the, the conditions that our forebearers underwent and the lessons they bequeathed to us. I'm curious if you find this, uh, this change, particularly on the political right, you know, particularly vexatious since, you know, in talking about this carrying on of tradition and learning from the wisdom of the people who came before us and the events that came before us, um, I, you know, I would always expect that conservatives, people who have um, a greater reverence for tradition and what came before us to be better on these kinds of issues. But you, I look around at the political right right now when it talks about these kinds of foreign policy problems and see a, just a marked change in the way that they think about them. I, I don't think the the policy effects may be similar to like what the left of when you know I started paying attention to this stuff in the early 2000s would have wanted, but the reasoning for it is is different on the right. But the it seems like to me that the outcome is largely the same. Yeah, and I don't know how much to attribute that to a on the on the part of Republican voters, like at the grassroots level. I don't know how much to attribute a sentiment like that, that is very popularist, populist, um, to a gen genuine reading on their part of the political landscape and the international landscape and coming up with a set of policy preferences they think would address those problems and separate that necessarily from the their hostility towards their domestic political adversaries. I think a lot of the decisions that are made on an instinctual level and even on an unconscious level by voters are informed more by negative polarization, by their hostility to their domestic political adversaries. And I don't mean necessarily the domestic political opponents on the other side of the aisle. I mean the narcissism of small differences within intra-coalitional politics. 
the defining feature, I think, of quite a lot of the right now is that they all hate each other. And they hate each other more than they hate their foreign America's foreign adversaries, and they hate each other more than they hate their de the Democrats. They do not want to be associated with each other. They want to see one or the other defeated eternally and without uh, any ambiguity around it, an acknowledged uh, capitulation from the other side, uh, which isn't going to be forthcoming from anybody, particularly within one's own coalition. But I feel like that drives policymaking and policy preferences on Republican voters, and particularly in relation to foreign affairs. But just you, you've experienced it yourself. I experience it all the time. Argument over policy devolves rather quickly into identity. Uh, and I don't mean demographic identity, accidents of birth. I mean affiliations and affinities and to whom you are beholden and what ideas are more closely aligned with the ideas of people that I don't like on this or that issue. Uh, and it all becomes a contest of tribe. And that's uh, really distressing and not especially productive. Doesn't get you anywhere closer to a to a reasoned policy response. It shuts down debate rather than advances it. But I feel like that's one of the defining features of, in particular, the political right. It's, 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 a, it's an evidence on the political left, but it's muted because of the fact that the Democratic Party presently has a lot of political power. And that political power is a moderating influence, particularly given that one of the uh, the the president in particular is not especially radical in his policy preferences, although he defers very often to the radicals within his coalition. But he himself does not personify that kind of populist grievance. Uh, Donald Trump is a different character, obviously, and a different had a different effect on his political coalition. But when Joe Biden exits the stage, I expect that that same dynamic will. Um, become the dominant dynamic on the progressive left as well. It is intra-tribal politics and negative polarization is the most powerful physical force in our politics. So Nola, let's wrap it up here. And let me ask you, so what do we do about this? Um, is this just a situation where uh, we have to wait for people to be mugged by reality, as the uh, as the saying goes. And I've, I've flippantly joked that with a lot of what's going on in the world today, that uh, perhaps there's a new neoconservative being minted every day. Um, at least, perhaps I would hope that. Uh, but what what do we do? Do we just have to, you know, experience? Is it true, as Edmund Burke said, that example is the school of mankind, and he shall learn it no other? And we just have to experience all of the awfulness to figure out that the things we knew previously that we wished and pretended weren't true are the actual answers to this? Um, or is it incumbent upon those of us who understand these things to do a better job of communicating it forward, to imparting that wisdom to future generations? I, I often wonder, like, we just do we do a really bad job of teaching now and trying to explain what we know, why we know it, what these basic realities are, and that, you know, it's no matter how much you wish it to be different, it's not going to be, and you need to operate within those confines. Yeah, we do a terrible job of educating um, young people in particular about just, you know, the, the the fundaments of the tradition they inherited and the lessons they were bequeathed. And that's a deliberate exercise. The breaking down of that is an effort to... Uh, to liberate policymakers, to to do the things that they want to do, to experiment, to reform, to um, to be negligent of the law of unintended consequences, um, because they perceive themselves to be above it, sure, but also because they they resent powerfully the circumstances into which they were born, and want very much to change them. And adherence to these kind of tra traditional values, uh, informed very much by. Uh, hard-earned experience are impediments to that sort of thing. The impediments have to be broken down. It's a very, it's a, it's a deliberate project and a nefarious one. Um, and it's also the fact that hard realities will soon, we will soon encounter them once again, and they will uh, reveal to us the degree to which we've been indulging in luxuries. The notion that the greatest threat to the American social compact, to our power abroad and at home and our comfort and our prosperity that accompanies it, is the other party, is your neighbor, was a luxury. This a fatuous rational, rationalization um, that allowed you to look 
beyond the world abroad and the macroeconomic landscape and half a dozen other big picture policies and focus instead on your own personal grievances, sometimes petty grievances, the presumption that you and your particular lot in life was stolen from you by unseen forces, omnipotent but unseen forces. Um, these were all, these were luxuries. The commercial power is yet another one that will impose uh, a bit of clarity on us. When I was, I think you, we spoke about my last book, which was uh, on the rise of the new Puritans, which is a, uh, a, a strange little uh, cultish affect on the progressive left that regards uh, you know, frivolities and enjoyment with hostility because they distract you from the great project of our time, which is building the progressive utopia. And you have to be focused on the ills of mankind at all times and in all things. And entertainment in particular distracts you from that. And that is un un unconscionable. That's a very puritanical outlook. But what broke that down for, for the old Puritans and what will break it down for us is commercial power, because quite a lot of the products that they seek to replace our frivolities with are awful, are just not enjoyable. They're trash and people don't like them. And that is something that we're already seeing market forces take uh, take charge and withdraw from some of the social reformers who have found themselves at the head of entertainment companies. A lot of the power they had to put out terrible products that nonetheless pushed a message that was desirable. Hard power politics, commercial power, the... Um, fascinatingly uh, compelling realization that you're to be hung in a fortnight, right? I mean, that's the sort of thing that actually just focuses the mind. Um, and so I think we will, as as our conditions continue to deteriorate and our, the threats we face metastasize and grow more urgent and, and go closer into view, uh, I suspect we will see the restoration of some kind of sobriety uh, it's just very unfortunate that we will most likely have to experience a lot of hard times in order to get there. It's a human condition. It's a human foible. Um, but it is one that is avoidable if we were to commit to remembering these lessons of the past. And that's all we have to do. It is a shame that I don't think anybody will get there because to do so would be to come to do so to commit to that project would be to come at the expense of your own ego, your own uh, conception of yourself. Um, and uh, embrace a kind of humility that we don't often see in the public sphere. So it's it's unfortunate um, and it's preventable, but nobody seems very interested in preventing it. Noah Rothman is a senior writer at National Review. He is the author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun and Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. He is also the author of The Great Unlearning, an essay in the January 2024 issue of National Review, which we've been discussing today. Noah, thanks so much for joining us today on Act in Line. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.